Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. This is episode 64. And my question for you today is this, do you have a pet? If you're in Australia, it's highly likely that you do, as Australia has one of the highest rates of pet ownership in the world. I found that out recently, did not know that before. About 62% of Australian households own pets. With dogs, the most common pets, there are estimated to be 4.8 million pet dogs in Australia, which is 20 dogs for every 100 people. And cats are the second most common pet, with 29% of households owning a cat, including mine. So my next question is this, what do you think your pet or pets add to your well-being? I have several pets. I have three chickens, one cat, and somewhere between two and four fish. We're not exactly sure of the status of the fish right now. They do live in a pond in the yard and they're excellent hiders. And sometimes we see them and sometimes we don't. So head counts are difficult. But I do spend considerable time sitting by the pond just watching them or watching for them. And they're really soothing, calm little creatures. And I'll admit to a little spike of joy when I do spot one swimming around. I also really like hanging out with my chickens or chooks, as they're known colloquially here in Australia. They are always happy to see me, most likely because I'm the one who brings the food. But they're also just lovely, friendly, unassuming company in the garden. And pets are very mindful, aren't they? They remind us to be in the moment when we're with them. They're not worried about what's going to happen next week or what happened yesterday. They're just right here, right now, and they bring you back to that place too. So today we're talking about animals on the show, horses in particular, with a psychologist who works with horses to assist her clients. But before we get to that, I must thank our partner and collaborator for this season of the podcast. It is, of course, the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference, a two-day event being held in Melbourne here in Australia on the 28th and 29th of April 2020. And if you haven't had a look at the conference program yet, I thought I'd just highlight a few features of it for you. It is a two-day event, and day one is focused on wellbeing in the workplace, which is one of my favourite topics. And because this is a science and evidence-based event, the sessions are much more than just running mindfulness programs and yoga sessions at lunchtime at work. Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course. Session topics include things like how to build your best day with Professor Tim Olds. And Tim will be looking at how much sleep and physical activity we need to perform at our best at work and how long is too long to sit in a day. And we'll actually be talking to Tim about this here on the show next week. Day one of the conference also covers healthy eating strategies for the workplace, which I suspect means less reliance on the charity chocolates in the office kitchen and perhaps something more thoughtful about our nutrition during the working day and perhaps what it's doing for us. The 
final session on day one of the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference will be presented by one of our potential psychology friends and past guests, Dr. Susie Green, who'll be talking about creating meaningful and sustainable change for individuals and workplaces. And all the details of these sessions and more are on the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons website at weeh.org.au. You might also like to subscribe to their email updates to stay up to date with all event-related news. A lovely email went out recently announcing the Potential Psychology Podcast as the official podcast partner for the conference, which was very cool. Okay, so let's get back to the animal, shall we? With me today is Naomi Rossthorne. Naomi is a psychologist and the clinical director of Harnessing Wellness, which is a psychological counselling service located in the beautiful Yarra Ranges in Victoria, here in the southeastern of Australia. And Harnessing Wellness is not your ordinary counselling practice because rather than sitting in a room with your therapist, you are just as likely to be in the great outdoors with your therapist and a gorgeous horse or pony. Naomi and her team have a specialist interest in equine-assisted therapy, and Naomi is also the co-founder and director of the Equine Assisted Psychologists Association, which is an organisation supporting registered psychologists offering equine-assisted psychology. And when she's not busy with all of that, she does pro bono work with volunteers who rescue neglected horses. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you very much for having me, Alan. It's lovely to be here. I, and you've just given me a lovely visual tour, which unfortunately our listeners don't get, but we might pop some photos up on the show notes for the episode so that they can see of not only your office, but the gorgeous view from your office over the Yarra Ranges and your horses. Yes, that'll be good. It's delightful. And yes, you know, for anybody who doesn't, we do have international listeners and listeners from all over Australia. So if you don't know the Yarra ranges in the Yarra Valley, you should check it out because even if you're doing that via distance, because it is a really, really beautiful part Mm. of the world. So Naomi, we're going to have a little chat about equine assisted psychology today, which is a relatively new field, as I understand it. Can you tell us what it is? So some people work with dogs in therapy with people. Some people work with cats. I've chosen to work with horses in therapeutic sessions with people. And what that encompasses is we're outside with the horses. It's not so much the horsemanship, um, learning about the horsemanship or riding the horse, but more about the interactions people have with the horses and the meaning-making people make out of those interactions. Also, it can be activities that we do with the horses that can overt certain processes such as confidence, self-esteem, coping strategies people may have. So it's through the interaction and being with the horses and doing various activities that we can start getting some fodder or psychological understanding of the perspective of the person and some of the areas in which therapeutic interventions might benefit the person more. So some people who come to the sessions are people who may find sitting in a room a bit difficult. So I see the equine therapy as an adjunct therapy and an experiential therapy. So a way for people to kind of walk and talk with the horses. So, and a lot of people come because either they love horses or they love animals or they love being outside or they are curious about horses and want to find out what they could learn from them. Okay, and that sort of makes sense in the context of where you're physically situated or geographically situated because you are in a, would you describe it as a semi-rural? Semi-rural, rural, rural, yes, area. Okay, 
So yeah. a lot of your clients, I'm assuming, would come perhaps from farming backgrounds or semi-rural backgrounds. They're used to living outdoors. They may have yes. some experience with horses yes. themselves. Yes, I'm starting to get a lot of people from the city who are wanting to come out to have experiences as well who have found that they would like to walk and talk more so. Yeah, so it, it's varied. It just, it, I think it attracts a certain person who perhaps doesn't want to be sitting down. <laughs> <laughs> and I can sort of understand that because I think it is a little confronting probably even for those of us who have spent a lot of time sitting in, in small offices and talking to people but to be in a small space kind of face-to-face -face, talking about maybe topics or situations or uh, emotions yeah that that might be a little uncomfortable and to be able mm. to do that a outdoors and be in the company of an animal. So tell me a little bit about, because I, I have colleagues uh, here in Ballarat who actually use dogs as part of their assisted therapy or what would we call them, canine-assisted therapy maybe, yes. Yeah. Yes. particularly with children. And my understanding is that they can kind of yeah, take the dog for a walk and they pat the dog and they talk about how the dog might be feeling. Mm. Or So it's that kind of almost talking through the animal. I, I don't yes. know. How do, how do you describe that in, in something that sounds more professional? So... I would say that a lot of people project their feelings onto the horse or the pony. Say that, say that the horse or the pony turned to walk away from the client. The client might say, oh, they don't like me. Nobody likes me. I have that at school where everyone turns away from me. I've had other sessions where the horse might stand with the client and then that might be an opportunity for the client to reflect, oh, someone does like me or he just wants to be with me and then we can talk about well what are you noticing in your body right now and we can start exploring some emotional regulation bring in some mindfulness tools and also use some interpersonal therapy to explore relationship dynamics so the projection onto the horse or metaphorical exercises as well so you know if, if the herd of the horses here were your family who who would you say you were and how would you relate to everybody else and what do you notice and so that's another way to explore their world through using metaphor and projection that might be less direct um if it was just you know how do you feel about that and what mm. have you yeah, okay. So using the behaviour of the horse as a, a little bit of a prompt maybe or yes. and then, yeah, I understand that projection piece, so being able to kind of almost project their feelings, thoughts, emotions onto the behaviour of the horse, which then you can pick up on as yes. the therapist and open a conversation, which mm. does make a lot of sense to me because I do think, you know, it would be confronting for a lot of people <laughs> to just be asked, you know, well, what do you think, what do you feel or what's going on? But this this is a way of almost doing it kind of sideways. And a lot of psychoeducation can be done because horses are prey animals. So utilising the way of the horse and how they are within their herd and utilising the way that they cope with certain things. So horses with high energy can get activated quite quickly and they might run and we can discuss that in, well, if you're feeling anxious, what do you notice happening in your body and what do you notice happens in your thinking and how could we work to settle that? What, should, what do you think we could do that might settle the horse and it might be, well, let's take a big deep breath out and breathe. One of the things I work with horses that I know very well and that I've had been trained for the last couple of years with a natural horsemanship trainer and one of the things that I do and have specifically wanted with my horses is that I know how to stop them so 
The other thing with horses is using a lot of nonverbal language and reading the horse. So with clients, I can teach the client how to stop. Two of the horses that I work with will stop at the out breath, a big I don't want to do that. If yeah. <laughs> but no, so it's an audio horses... medium here, so that's good. <laughs> so the horses will stop with a big out-breath and the client can see that sometimes by activating their parasympathetic nervous system and breathing out that they can have an impact within the environment and the horse will stop and they can then notice what happens with their activation in their body and their emotional regulation and see if there's any shifts that they can notice. So it's a practical application, I guess, of how to emotionally regulate yourself and also you can see in the environment how the horses also change when we settle ourselves and take some time just to be. So that's one way that I work with the emotional regulation with people and the prey aspect of the horse as well and a lot of people will say that they're quite anxious and what have you and because horses are prey animals sometimes we describe them as having anxiety on four legs (laughs) and how is it that anxiety on four legs can manage itself and what other things can we do with that the other thing that I talk a lot about is with the horses is food touch and movement as primary developmental needs so food is obviously a physiological need and what horses need to keep themselves healthy they require certain types of food movement's very important for horses as it is when we're feeling depressed or what have you so movement is very important so I intertwine the way of the horse and the health of the horse into looking after ourselves as people as well and that's one of the wellness aspects but also the evidence-based practice utilizing the interventions for people who have depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms and some of the post-trauma or what have you stress management so a lovely teaching tool lovely teaching tool really to be able to yeah to be able to observe what the horses are doing how they manage themselves because I'm guessing you know horses I assume don't get so caught up in their own heads as we do no that's absolutely true so the other teaching or talking around that is that they have a thing I talk about the brain and the limbic system and horses have a large limbic system and that's how they resonate and attune to other horses and as prey animals they use that to survive. So when we walk in with the horses, we look at the attunement, we can utilise the behaviour to understand if the horses are looking at us or not looking at us and it opens a discussion about, I guess, the brain and why attunement or good people or healthy relationships or setting boundaries is a positive aspect in our in our world as well. So, yeah, that's another really nice way to bring in the limbic system in people understanding trauma and that sort of thing. The other thing I utilise is with movement is if horses don't move, they can become depressed because their hooves are like suspension pads and they actually pump fresh blood through their body through the pads of their feet so I use movement as an important part of staying healthy and, and what have you. So you can use the horses and what they need, both in terms of their physiology and psychology that connection. Yeah, their psychology, that connection with their peers, their family, in mm. inverted commas, mm. as a way of describing or just the parallels, the lovely parallels there between what they need as a creature and what we need. 
yeah. as a creature. Yeah, and that does make sense to me that people would be able to see that perhaps in a way that they can then relate to without getting so caught up in their own heads. Yes, and one of the other really lovely things with horses is they're not judgmental. They either think you're a person that they want to be near, so they move towards things that are safe and they move away from things that are safe. And for people who have maybe experienced unsafe relationships, it can be a nice little metaphor where we move towards things that might make us safe or might make us move away from things that might make us feel unsafe and then identifying how we notice that feeling of safety and that instinctive response. Hmm. Are there other things that horses can teach us? <laughs> uh, horses can teach us patience. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is a very important tool. <laughs> it is absolutely important. So a horse will watch our body language to work out what we want because they don't speak English. They speak horse. And so the people that I work with, my co-peer therapists that I have working with me, we have extensive knowledge on equine body language, nonverbal behaviour, and that helps us then teach the clients or the people participating what they need to notice. So if we move too quickly, the horse might not notice what we are doing or understand our request. So slowing down and being very clear in our intention and our focus can assist the horse understand. So with people with impulse control of wanting to touch the horse or wanting to do something or wanting to have the brush or something, we can say, well, actually, hang on, the horse, we need to be a bit slower so the horse understands what we're doing so it doesn't get a fright. So we can use that piece around patience and slowness and intention mm. to help us with our interactions so as to keep the horse feeling safe within the environment and the person feeling and noticing the behavior of the horse so that also increases some of the safety around horses is that person starts to read the environment and read the horse that they're with and there is a real experiential element to that isn't there absolutely you know we're we're doing this as we're not just intellectualizing it talking about it we're actually doing it so I assume then you know you might have someone who then does get to brush the horse so the slow movement the intentional action the paying attention both to the horse but probably also to themselves the conversation that you're having at the same time and then the physical element of you know brushing or leading Mm. or whatever it is you're doing And so horses groom each other. It's a form of them bonding with each other. They grab their teeth and they they bite each other on the wither, the shoulder area, and that evokes oxytocin. So to begin sessions and to keep things somewhat regular so the horses have an understanding of what might be happening and the person knows or the client knows what we might be doing, we start off by brushing. We start off by being. We start off by looking, observing, noticing maybe the mood of the horse. We notice the mood of ourselves and we also then start by brushing because the brushing then in a way allows the horse to feel somewhat more relaxed (laughs) and the person then tends to sort of get into the groove of the session um, if they come quite activated or what have you beforehand. So the grooming is actually quite an important part of the beginning of the sessions that I found. So it's a little bit of rapport building, I suppose. Exactly. Rapport building with a exactly. horse. <laughs> exactly. It's rapport building. <laughs> Relaxation and rapport building to begin with, yes. Yeah. Gorgeous. And again, yeah, I mean, uh, to me, that just seems like a wonderful thing to be able to do to actually just spend a few minutes because they are such majestic 
creatures mm. and to be able to spend some time doing that, I can imagine would be very calming and relaxing. Mm. Although as you were talking then, I wondered, you know, do you ever have people who come to you who are actually very fearful yes. of horses? Yes. So in that case, we just slow the process down and no one's ever forced to be with the horse and the horse is never forced to be with the person. So it's about safety and having control and being able to avert that I feel really scared right now. Well, what do we need to do to make you feel safe? Do you need to go out of the arena? Do we need just to observe today? Would you like me to put a halter on and we just stand or are you comfortable if we sit at the other side of the arena and just watch? So if people are fearful, that's really important for them to know that they can name it and we can create an environment in which they do feel safe and and how we do that can be guided very much by them and and we work through it. To me, that makes perfect sense from a therapeutic point of view that it's also then giving people the kind of awareness and the language and having a conversation about how it is they're feeling because so often we're a little oblivious to what we're feeling. We know we haven't really been able to even pay attention to it, let alone be able to give it a label and maybe know what to do with it. Mm. Yes. And wonderful things that horses can teach us. Is there (laughs) anything else that a horse teaches us? I'm learning so much. (laughs) Well, boundary setting's very important with horses. So one of the horses I work with, he's 16 hands, so he's quite tall and he can come and stand quite close to people And some people don't like that. Some people find it very triggering for them. So we work out different ways to be able to move the horse back. And that can be quite powerful for some people who have not been able to ask people to get out of their space. So some of the activities we can do around that is noticing the horse and noticing yourself. And we can walk towards the horse and start noticing when we might start feeling a bit unsafe and what we need to do there. And also moving the horse out of the space can be quite a good lesson as well. So helping people to understand that they do have choice, power and control and choice in these yes. situations, mm. yeah, which, as you say, might be something that they haven't dealt with before. Yes. So who are the clients who come to see? You've spoken a little bit about anxiety and depression and trauma. Mm. Is there a kind of a typical, again, I know there's never a typical client, no. but is it everything that you say? Yes. But the majority of the people are animal lovers. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the key theme for most of them. I was just thinking as you were talking before that really all the things that we've discussed, you know, whilst people who come to see you may be struggling with an experience or an emotion or perhaps some symptoms like anxiety and depression, a lot of what you've spoken about are actually life skills that we all need and could probably benefit from learning mm. a little more about or via this as a different avenue. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of, and I think because most of the projection and metaphors around how horses live and survive and how they rely on each other. And I think the life skills can benefit everybody. So I've been running groups for a while now, and I actually got into this work. I was asked 
by a non-for-profit organisation in 2010 to run groups for those that were affected by the bushfires in Victoria in 2009. Okay, and for those listeners who aren't aware, that, that was very, very significant bushfires or wildfires that occurred here where hundreds of people were killed? Yeah. Yeah. So this organisation wanted something outdoors for these people to process their experiences. A lot of them were not people who had been in therapy before. A lot of them were people who just this this happened and the things changed and they needed to explore. So I guess in terms of the people that I've seen, it's changed organically over the time and a lot of them are skills and coping strategies and quite practical things that people learn. So you were asked by this not-for-profit to start some group work. Can you yes. tell us a bit more about the group work itself? So the group work, it's for eight, well, it was for eight weeks and I worked with children, adolescents and adults. And the group work was basically to provide a safe place and space for people to talk about their grief and loss and pain and the distress of the aftermath of the bushfires and to become aware of their strengths and basically focused on resilience and new coping strategies. And a lot of it was through the experiential activities of the horses, but also um, an organic process out of the groups was that people realised they weren't the only ones. And so the social connectedness was very supportive in that process. And sometimes the horses are there, but it's through the groups and the social connectedness and the activities that people actually start to feel that they're not alone. And that can be really helpful in processing things as well. So I've been running groups since 2010. I've run a couple of groups every year. Um, for people and I pre and post assess all of the groups with permission of the people and the groups are basically very similar with some psychoeducational differences and interventions depending on the presenting issues but I'm collecting all of that to write some research papers to show some of the things that have come out of the groups which should be exciting. Yeah, because my understanding is that there's been limited, really high quality research in equine assisted psychology thus far. It's relatively new and it does take time and an awful lot of work to create really high quality data. So this is part of your efforts to really work on that and be able to, you know, make sure that that evidence is out there. Absolutely. So I've been collecting the pre and post data with the permission of the clients who are participating using similar tools, so similar psychometric tools, and I've been putting it together to make sure that we actually get some data because at the moment the data on equine-assisted therapy is not as rigorous as it needs to be to show efficacy. However, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest it perhaps is helpful, um, but Mm. we need scientific evidence to support that. So, yes, I'm trying very hard to (laughs) to work. (laughs) Do your bit. To show what the research shows. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And what sort of variables are you looking at? So you say pre and post. So for those who don't know this kind of scientific stuff, that just means that we do, you know, a little bit of work, some some gathering, some questionnaires maybe before, and then you have the intervention and then assess again afterwards. What sort of variables are you looking at? So for the adolescents, I've been using coping scales, so the adolescent coping scales and and exploring productive and non-productive coping 
within them and also using the strengths and difficulties questionnaire, so exploring overt and what's the other one? Um, (laughs) Strengths and weaknesses or difficulties. And for adults have been using the depression, anxiety and stress scale, looking at how anxiety, depression and stress might change. And with children, I've been using the children's coping scale as well. So, and also the strengths and difficulties questionnaire for the children. So looking at reduction in symptoms for some people and also perhaps an increase in resilience really in others. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, well, we'll be looking forward then to seeing the outcomes of all of that work because I know it's a big commitment doing research on top of everything else. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) And Naomi, how did you get interested in this field yourself? Because you started out as a city girl, is that right? Yes, I am from the city. It was because I was working in the Yarra Ranges at the time and I was working in the recovery centres that somebody approached me to do these programs and I, it just so happened that the weekend of the bushfires I was actually training doing how to work with horses in therapy just as an interest. And then so I put it all together. So that's how I sort of fell into it really. It wasn't purposeful but I did see some of the benefits so I've continued to use it and try and refine it and make it with more guidelines and more procedures and policies and what have you to make it a safer or a have it some clinical guidelines which it doesn't mm-hmm. have at this point in time. So, yeah, a bit of rigour around it. And I think mm-hmm. as a psychologist, first and foremost, um, we're trained in all of those things. So I try and utilise my training and skills as a psychologist to apply it to the therapy to make sure that it's as rigorous and safe as possible. Makes perfect sense. So it might not have started as a passion, but it sounds like it certainly is now. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what are the skills? So you, you work with a team of therapists. What are the skills that your therapists need to do this type of work? The people that I work with, I usually work with a horse handler person, myself and somebody else, and the co-facilitators that I've, uh, that I work with are people who have a understanding, very good understanding of privacy and confidentiality and a very good understanding of the therapeutic process. They also have a high knowledge of equine psychology and behaviour and they are very professional in the way that they deliver it. So I guess the people I choose to work with are very professional in what they do, which supports the work that we do. Yeah, because that's unusual, I suppose, in a a traditional psychological setting to have another person there, unless you're doing perhaps, you know, co-facilitating with groups and what have you, but to Mm. have another person there. But I can understand that you need somebody there who can be in charge of the horse as much as anything else while you're walking with the client. Mm. Hmm. Okay. And Naomi, you are, and I'm not sure where you find the time to do this, but you're also about to launch a book for budding equine-assisted psychologists. So this Mm. is part of your interest in, as you say, really creating some rigour and clinical guidelines Mm. around how this is used in psychology. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book? So the book is is actually going to be quite practical in terms of the guidelines. I'll be putting some of the research that I've done in it just to begin before I then publish. It's how to set up a venue to make it confidential and safe, looking at the skills that we've discussed in terms of what you'll need to work with the horses, the type of horses 
that you can work with. The horses that I work with, their temperaments, they like people, they're curious about people and, as I said, they've had training that has been helpful on the ground. So I talk a bit about the training that the horses have had. They have ongoing training. It's not something you just do for one week and you finish because every interaction with the horse is part of their training. And the book also talks about the psychological interventions that I've used with different, so case studies, psychological interventions that I've used with different people and how I've incorporated the horses in those processes. So it's very much from a psychologist's point of view and how to incorporate the horses and the benefits that I've found and then looking at the research or the pre and post testing that I've done to start yeah, showing that. So it really is a, a kind of a, almost a how-to manual for anyone who's interested in setting up yes. an equine-assisted practice. So, you know, pulling in not only the research and what's available from a psychological perspective but also just your own experience of what works and and what perhaps doesn't. what doesn't work <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's always good to learn from those things yes. and being able to then you know for others to use that as a guide which sounds mm. like a wonderful contribution to the field yeah thank you hopefully <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it's a work in progress yeah. do you have a feel at the moment for when that's likely to be out there and available for people probably in the new year it'll okay, be wonderful. probably new year yes yep Yep. Okay, well, we'll make sure that our listeners are aware. We will publicise it when it's, so you have to let me know when it's out there and available for people because I, I do know there is a burgeoning interest. I don't know how many equine-assisted psychology practices there are right now. Are you aware of, you know, the kind of numbers that are? It's about three that I'm aware of in Victoria. In Victoria, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I know there's one out this way somewhere. I've got a, a colleague of mine in New South Wales. She's a clinical psychologist. Her name's Melissa Johnson and I. We started the Equine Assisted Psychologist Association to build on and work with other psychologists to make this work on clinical practices and ethical psychological-based practices and research. So there's her. (laughs) She's in New South Wales. But I don't know of many psychologists that have done this i think dogs are a lot easier to bring into your practice <laughs> they're a little smaller aren't they <laughs> a little easier to manage yes, yes. <laughs> yeah but even even dogs you know i know i because it's not something i'd heard much about and yet increasingly mm. you know as i said I, I know local psychologists who use dogs in their therapy i've met others online who are using dogs as well sometimes cats mm. so there does seem to be an increasing interest in the use and it does make perfect sense you know I think I mean there is certainly research out there about the benefit of pets for our well-being for our emotional regulation for reducing our stress levels even I have a cat I find that just having him sitting there purring on my lap you know just makes you feel good that there Mm. must be some benefits in there there was an article in the Herald Sun I can't remember I think it was last weekend and there was a professor of psychology at RMIT that talked about the two benefits of animals in therapy. And he he talked about the attunement and attachment as two key ways that animals can support people in, through therapeutic processes. So the attunement goes back to their limbic systems. They can be more regulated than us, but we're able to attune to something that's not necessarily a, a person if people are something that we're not comfortable with and the attachment and I guess one of the examples that I used before in terms of having the horse standing with somebody feeling non-judged and feeling like they want to stand with them 
So those two things that were named uh, from this psychologist or professor at RMIT a mm. few weeks ago. I can't remember the name, unfortunately. We can <laughs> look that up. We can look that yeah. up and pop it in the show notes. I think, yeah, just having even again the conversations. We, animals are very mindful creatures aren't they they, they're not as I said you know getting caught up in their own heads they're not worried about what's going to happen in the future or what's going to happen in the past they're just here in the present right mm. now so that's probably something we can all learn a little bit yes. they're from. generally <laughs> generally regulated nervous systems so they can generally yes yeah and then they know what to do or their instincts all those things those systems kick in mm. when they are scared and and just by watching their behavior we can learn so much from them Janina Fisher, Dr. Janina Fisher and Dr. Peter Levine also utilises this. It's the window of tolerance as a concept that our nervous systems get activated and we can be anxious, hypervigilant, overwhelmed, angry, defensive, and then our nervous systems can go down to where we feel numb and disconnected or disassociated or what have you. So I use this window of tolerance as an example of when we're with the horses as with the people so that they can start really noticing how their self is within different circumstances. Naomi, you mentioned the Equine Assisted Psychologists Association and that as being part of your, again, another contribution to the field to gather experts in this area to find them and gather them together and support them and I guess further the profession. Or even further it as an adjunct therapy Mm-hmm. that people can um, utilise that shows, or we've, but we've got to do it more, get more research to support it. But um, if we can get some psychologists to work within the ethical standards and we can have some networking and a few other things, then people who are psychologists using horses, we could really work to get more research out there, get more rigour to the profession or the type of therapy we will put a link to that organisation, which is in its infancy, isn't it? You, it's you've absolutely in its infancy, it. yeah. yes. So we'll put yeah. a link to that in the show okay. notes for people. Where else can people find out more about your work but also about equine-assisted psychology generally? Well, I think that so the, one of the interesting things with this field is a lot of different types of people are doing it with different professional backgrounds. Okay. So... I think you can Google, obviously, equine-assisted therapy or what have you, and that will bring up information on what it is. But I think what's also a little bit challenging is that everybody will be offering something a little bit different depending Mm -hmm. on their professional credentials. So if people are interested in finding out more about it, find somebody who you feel has the appropriate credentials to be working with the issues or the experiences that you've had to see whether or not you feel that they're appropriate for you. So I guess googling at this point in time <laughs> That's is a good place to start. Well we will put we will put the links to harnessing wellness, your practice and you. also your social media links so that people can find you both on Facebook and on Instagram if they'd like to know a little bit more. And you do have a blog as well that you write yes. on your site so people can read up there. Two, I think, as you said, 
you know, and I did do, you know, a little Google on equine-assisted therapy, but just that term therapy also, you know, for us as psychologists, we kind of think of psychological therapy, but of course horses are also used for a lot of people for more physical types of therapy as well. So yeah, there's a lot of difference. I think that's wonderful advice just to kind of, you know, if you're out there looking to find out a little more or perhaps to engage in this yourself, look at it from the perspective or what is it that I need and I'm I'm quite sure if people contacted you you might be able to point them in the right direction as well yes but (laughs) no he's just made it a sort of astonished face at me here um yeah but I'll give people plenty of resources (laughs) but as I mentioned Whenever you're looking at or if you're interested in doing equine therapy, have a look at the person delivering the equine therapy as to whether or not they have the credentials you need for the things that you'd like to work through with them. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Fantastic advice. Naomi, thank you so much. It's been so interesting. I'm going to go away and think about even perhaps the conversations I might have with my kids about our pets and what they observe about their behaviour and what we can learn about our own behaviour on the basis of that, I'll also put, as I said right at the beginning, some pictures from your practice and just that beautiful scenery that you showed me because even just looking at that I think is going to do people good. There'll be lots of resources as well as uh, some of the books that you've mentioned and some of the tips that you've given us on mm. what we can learn from horses to perhaps help our own well-being and to fulfil our potential as human beings. I really appreciate your time. Good luck with the research. Good luck with the book. We will let everybody know when that is out there and available and enjoy the rest of your glorious day. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to that conversation with Naomi Rossthorne from Harnessing Wellness. I do have to admit to a little bit of jealousy. How wonderful would it be to get to work with animals every day? and to see the benefits that animals bring to our humans. I know a number of psychologists, actually, who have incorporated animals into their therapeutic practice, and it's certainly a growing field, and it's exciting to see the research that's being conducted into its efficacy. I, meanwhile, will just have to settle with hanging out with my chickens and my fish and my cat for my wellbeing. If you'd like a transcript of today's conversation or you'd like to find out more about Naomi Harnessing Wellness, equine assisted psychology or Naomi's pro bono work with Project Hope and Horse Welfare Victoria, you'll find all the links you need in the show notes for this episode. Visit potential.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll also find Naomi's pointers on what horses can teach us humans about well-being. Big thanks again today to the Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference for partnering with Potential Psychology to bring you this episode of the show. To find out more about the Wellbeing and Evidence and Horizons Conference, which is taking place in Melbourne, Australia, in April 2020, head to weh.org.au. And next week, we do, I can confirm, have the first of our Wellbeing Evidence and Horizons Conference speakers joining me on the show. It is, as I mentioned in our intro, Professor Tim Olds. Tim is a time-use epidemiologist, which means that he studies the effects of how we use our time on our health and happiness. And we're going to be talking about building your best day. So how much sleep and exercise do you really need each day to stay in tip-top condition? And what does that actually mean? And how long is too long to sit during your day? And how do you juggle this is a big one for me. How do you juggle all the things? 
So get ready to think about how you fit everything into your day and what that's doing for your well-being. Here's Tim to tell you a little bit more. More and more, rather than looking at individual behaviours, as we did about 10, 15 years ago, we're looking at patterns of behaviour. So it's a bit like the changes happened with diet and nutrition. So previously, we're interested to see whether fat was bad for health or nuts were good for health. Now we're looking at patterns of diet like the Mediterranean diet. You might think of this, we're trying to find the Mediterranean day. We call it the Goldilocks day, the ideal day for overall health. It's taken us a very long time to realise a really obvious fact that there are only 24 hours in the day and that if you increase the amount of time you spend doing one thing, say physical activity, you've got to decrease the amount of time to do something else. And so it's never just one thing. You have to have a look at changes in patterns of behaviour. That's next week on the Potential Psychology Podcast. It's going to be a fascinating conversation and I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. In the meantime, though, stay safe, go forth and thrive, flourish and fulfil your potential. Potential.